0: Good news, good news, good news. Welcome to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Bells and whistles going off all over the studio here. Another email alert. It's been about 35 seconds since I got my last one. And the final good, fr- good News Friday of the month of August. Next week, of course, is Labor Day weekend. And it's also a special day in the Marsh household because my big sister, Linda, has a birthday on next Friday. So Good News Friday is going to be all about her okay? She loves the bottom line and likes to listen. And I'm grateful because I have two siblings, and one of them listens on a regular basis, and the other one is my brother. So, um, <laughs> I no, I wouldn't expect him to do I don't watch all his sermons either. I mean, th- th- we love each other. I mean, we, he was in town a couple of weeks ago. I we, we, uh, spent the night, went out to breakfast. I mean, uh, we have a great relationship, but I just know that he's a busy guy and a little more on the liberal side of the equation. And my sister and I are a little more politically like-minded, and so there we go. So, yeah. <laughs> See, and even in the happiest families, we can have, we can agree to disagree, we can find common ground, and eventually we'll get my brother to come around. And I'm sure he says the same thing to his friends too. <laughs> Why not? Hey, we've got, this hour is going to be fun. Uh, every now and again on a Good News Friday, we get a chance to share an interview. And the one that's coming up later this hour is actually one that I'm really fond of because it's not every day that the publisher reaches out to us and says, hey, guess what? Remember when you had such and such a guest on the program? Um, Well, guess what? We have additional copies of that book or that movie or, you know, whatever it is uh, that you can use for a giveaway. And I said, are you kidding me? A giveaway on Good News Friday? I'm all in. And so coming up at the bottom of the hour today, uh, we're going to revisit my conversation with Sister Joan Chittister. Dr. Chittister, uh, the author of the book, The Monastic Heart, 50 Simple Practices for a Contemplative and Fulfilling Life. There's already a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and I'll give you a hint. We have another copy of the book to give away, so we're going to give it away today during Good News Friday. So uh, set your watches, 430 Mountain, 330 Pacific. That's the time zone you're in if you're listening to the program right now. If you're listening online, Uh, listening to the podcast, I can't help you. (laughs) Sorry. The only way you get the free stuff is if you call in and win when we offer it, okay? Uh, I have some good news, though. I know a lot of people have been concerned about what's happening with inflation. And of course, earlier this week, the announcement of the student loan Debt forgiveness program, and that's got everybody all in a lather. Which is why the Democrats did it. You know that. I know that. They did it to energize their base and say, "See, here's more free money. Vote for us." And knowing that on the other side, it'd be like, "What? I went to school and I paid out my student loans, and this isn't right." Now, I, I and I get it. I on. I mean, trust me, I get it on both sides of the aisle. On the one hand, there are people who went to school, they took out loans because they were told by the educational uh, organizations that they were that sure you know what you're going to go ahead and you're, you'll make a lot of money with that college degree. Now, the only person I've ever known who got a college degree and it paid for itself was my dad. My dad graduated from Whittier College in 1955. He and my mom they went to Whittier College because they lived in Whittier and Whittier had a college called Whittier College. I mean, that it, we make the college academic world way more difficult more complicated than it needed to be my mom got a degree in sociology got a teaching credential started teaching first grade thought she wanted to teach fourth but the first job opening was for first grade she took the first grade gig and taught it for 30 years and then retired at but a 10-year hiatus in the middle that's where my sister my brother and i showed up my dad got a degree in voice vocal performance with a minor in uh, in uh, piano i believe went on to grad school because the army didn't work out for him because he had a problem with his leg and asthmatic and stuff like that. So he went to grad school because he wound up with a year off. They thought he was going to have to go to Korea. And instead, he wound up going to uh, Westwood first, and then he eventually wound up at the University of Southern California, where he was studying about the same time another guy by the name of Dr. James Dobson was doing his graduate work there, too. It's kind of fun. I think they both got their doctorates in the same year, might have even been on the same day. But I remember my dad going to he spent a lot of nights took about 10 years to finish off that uh, EDD uh, degree doctorate of education and once he did I remember him telling me he said son this is really expensive he told me how much it cost and I honestly don't remember how much it was I want to say was you know several thousand dollars not nearly as much uh, as it is today but then he said but you know what here's the great thing about this degree this degree will pay for itself with my first next job and he wanted to get a good job in Orange County as the music coordinator for all the school districts in Orange County. I think there were 35 at the time or something like that. And with the stroke of a pen and the sign of a contract, he had a brand new job that basically paid him enough in one year to pay off all of the money that he had worked so hard to save, teaching driver training, directing church choir stuff on the side to pay for his education. And I know a lot of people right now have a lot of anger, a lot of passion, a lot of angst about the student loan side for people who are still paying on their student loan debt and will be paying for it for longer than their home mortgage. They're saying, wait a minute, I got a raw deal. The government kind of wrote me into this. I should be able to get out somehow. And then there are people on the other side saying, hey, I went to school. I took out a student loan or two or three. I paid it off. So why, where's my check? And I I have to admit, this was such a huge whiff for me from the White House, especially right now when inflation is so high. It's completely tone deaf to look at people who have student loan debt are earning as much as $125,000 a year and saying, we're going to knock 10 grand off your student loan debt. And here's the reason why. It's not because some people get it and other people don't. I'm seeing a lot of people on social media saying, I went to school. I put myself through school. I took out a student loan. Hey, shake hands with the rest of us. I went to community college for a year. I went to Cal State Fullerton for several more after that. I went to a broadcasting workshop to learn how to mix tapes and produce commercials and things like that i wound up with about twenty five hundred dollars worth of a guaranteed student loans that's all they would let you borrow back in the day and it took me about 10 years to pay it off no relief from the government whatsoever my wife has been pursuing advanced degrees uh during our marriage and we're paying along the way as we go no student loan necessary all three of my kids have gone to college and had student loans i've got another uh bonus child who's back in school and has a grant and a scholarship and you know things that are helping out that way but the 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 whole course of thought is when you go to school pay your way school isn't college is not for everyone but the media and the government and academia has made it to the point where yes now you do need a college degree for just about anything i mean secretarial uh answer the phone jobs it seems like they're asking for four year college degrees which you can't get in anything less than six And so enrollments are down. Schools are scrambling. I mean, you can look at the statistics and see how much things have gone up. Inflation has really hammered families. You know, mom and dad taking out a second on the house to pay for junior to go to, you know, Ivy League U or wherever they were going to go to college or the Christian school. And by the way, Christian colleges and universities, if there are any academics and administrators listening, how come your tuitions are so expensive also? I mean, I just uh, had a conversation with the president of a brand new Christian college uh, just outside of Nashville, Tennessee, that looks very, very interesting to me. Fully accredited, offering bachelor's degrees, master's, and doctoral programs as well. And when I looked at their pricing per unit, I thought, now this is the way a Christian education should be. Oh, but Roger, it's brand new. No, no, no. Who, Who starts out with full accreditation? A lot of times schools will open up and they'll say, here's the deal. In five years, we hope to be accredited. This school laid the foundation and I I will eventually mention them on the air if they become partners of the program. But nonetheless, they've made college affordable. And they're one of the few Christian colleges I know that has done that. Everyone else has to play that borrowing game. Here's why I don't think it's fair to anybody to pay $10,000 to millions of people so they could, I mean, they're not paying them the money directly. They're taking it off their bill. For the people who work hard and went to school, I, I maybe mean, that's that's a no-brainer. You went hard and you went to community college. You went to state university instead of whatever. You searched and searched the internet looking for, uh, for scholarship money. Sometimes you went to a school simply because they offered you a scholarship. You did everything you could to pay that stuff off and you paid your way through. To which I say, good for you well done, good and faithful servant. Yeah, this kind of stings to see that the government's handing out $10,000 after you worked so hard to pay yours off, or the fact that they're paying it up to a certain salary amount. And let's face it, $125,000 sounds like a lot of money. I don't know if it is that much compared to what it used to be, but it does seem kind of like a poke in the eye to people who paid for their school and then, you know, are having... (laughs) these uh, PTSD moments watching other people get their stuff paid off and making a fairly decent living. I understand your frustration, but if you are on the receiving end of that, I would uh, expect you to be frustrated as well. Inflation is running away at an all-time high when The federal government took over the student loan program when uh, President 44 took office. He federalized everything, and that was supposed to streamline it, make it easier to get the loans. They wouldn't charge as much in interest. It wouldn't be as hard on collections, blah, blah, blippity, blah. Guess what happened? When the program was taken over by the federal government, there were about $450 billion in student loans out there. By the time that president left office, there was nearly 1.7, I mean, the, the amount of money, it was somewhere, one and a half trillion dollars or something like that. I mean, it just jumped exponentially. It, 20 years ago, the average college student graduated with $17,000 in student loan debt. Today, the average amount of student loan debt for college students is 35000 So you owe $35,000 on your student loan debt, and the government says, we're going to knock 10 off the front. Thank you. I'm still in that weird labyrinth known as student loan debt calculation to where I could pay the minimum payment. I could pay a little extra for five years, and at the end of five years, I actually owe more than when I started. This is great news for the federal government, and oh, by the way, for the Democrat Party, who have bamboozled a bunch of people into thinking this is in your best interest, not asking the question, where are the $300 billion going to come from to pay for all the handouts? It's a lose-lose for all of Americans, especially with inflation going so high. But the White House will keep saying, isn't it great? Your wages went up 5.5%. Not, isn't it lousy that inflation's at 9%? I mean, you can do the math, right, with me? I mean, the math is if I get a 5% pay increase, but the cost of everything goes to 9% higher than that, even my raise isn't enough for me to keep up. And eventually I'm going to start have to hit my savings. I got an email last weekend from a guy who said, why do you always talk about things that are so negative? Well, here's the deal. I promised you this is a good news story. I really did. But there's a whole bunch of setup here that we had to get through. Inflation's high. We keep piling on debt. The nation looks like it's going to hell in a handbag. And yet I have some good news from the Commerce Department. The good news is that the savings rate for personal savers in the United States actually went to its lowest rate in almost 15 years last month. That's the good news? Wait, Roger, I thought this was good news Friday. What do you mean that's good news? Well, guess what? On the other side of this break, I will tell you why that number the lowest it's been since September 2008, is actually pointing to something that is good news, especially for those of us who spent the last couple of years during the pandemic saving our pennies for that proverbial rainy day. Get your umbrellas out. We'll talk about that next as the bottom line continues. By investing in the Wilson Financial Services 4D or four-dimensional account, your investment is guaranteed against loss. It provides long-term
1: care benefits, permanent income benefits, and inflation benefits all at the same time. You know, I had a client come in this morning, and the first thing he asked me was, tell me about 4D money. And I said, well, 4D money is a fun thing. It's exactly the opposite of what you have now with your one-dimensional account with Ameritrade. You've been watching that thing drop like a rock since the first of the year. You're probably fed up with it. I said, this account, number one, the money never goes down. Number two, it has inflation benefits. Number three, it has long-term care benefits. Number four, it has permanent income benefits. And so when you put all these things on the same page and show it to a client, it sounds too good to be true. And that was his comment to me. I said, well, you know me a long time. You know it's true. I don't make stuff up. So he met with Tess and we moved his Ameritrade account in a matter of 30 minutes. Ask Dennis Wilson and his team
0: at Wilson Financial Services to explain the four dimensions of their 4D account. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970 for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Good News Friday, kind of an analysis, balance and clarity Good News Friday program uh, where we're talking about what doesn't sound like good news, but actually is. Government keeps piling on more debt. This week it was $300 billion more to forgive some student loan uh, mess. It's, It's a paper trick. It's a campaign ploy. It's designed to get you to vote Democrat on November the 8th. I pray it doesn't work only, not because of, I hate Democrats or I love Republicans or whatever. I hope that voters are smart enough to see through this and say, yeah, you know what? That doesn't help. First of all, it doesn't eliminate all my debt. Secondly, what good is this kind of debt if you pile it up and can get it so easily and then they could with a stroke of a pen, say, ah, it's forgiven. This isn't Jesus giving forgiveness where your sins are absolved by the blood of Christ on the cross. But rather, um, it's a reaction to the fact that people are saying, look, the economy's in bad shape, and so we need some help. Is $10,000 going to help student loan uh, carriers? Well, anything will help if you write it down, but you're still in the system and you still owe money because the average amount of debt that somebody has uh, for student loans is around thirty-five thousand. So you knock ten off of that, you're still at twenty-five. And then to make matters seemingly worse, the U.S. personal savings rate has fallen to its lowest metric since September of two thousand eight. On average. People typically fall, save around 7.2% of their income, which is kind of cool when you think about it. I think as Christians, you know, kind of a good rule of thumb is if you're tithing 10%, you save 10% and you live on the 80%, you should have enough for that proverbial rainy day. In the United States, it's typically been 7.2% on average that people save. And obviously some people are hyper savers. They save 30 or 40% of their income. And other people, Big, there's one, there's two, you know. <laughs> Uh, they do it kind of low so why is the commerce department saying that even though u.s personal savings rate fell to 4.4 percent this past spring this is older data from uh uh, from april that this is actually good news well here's (laughs) Here's what happened. And this is something the government didn't count on. When the pandemic happened, and I like to call it the pandemic, because I believe that what we saw here was, was COVID real? Absolutely. Was it manufactured in a lab? Absolutely. Did the U.S. and other developed nations think that they could manufacture it and then come up with a cure to so say, look, there's a problem. And then we've got the cure. Uh, yeah. Uh, did it work out for them? Well, you know how it worked out. Uh, if you've had COVID, you know, some people, it's kind of like a cold for other people. They say, I've heard many people tell me I thought I was going to die. But one thing that did die in many states, especially Democrat led states statistically, is jobs, businesses. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I mean, I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm just laughing because the irony is the nationwide response with the, remember, 15 days to stop the spread and blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, you wind up having restaurants closed. Remember how dumb it was to eat on parking lots? Cars are driving by. They're spewing all sorts of waste on you and, you know, fuel and emissions and everything. And then you're out there trying to eat a sandwich in the parking lot of some restaurant. Because if you go inside, everyone's going to get cooked. You know, I mean, come on. I'm glad we know better now. I really am. I'm glad we know that, yes, it can be dangerous. Yes, it can be fatal in some cases. For the most part, it isn't going to be. And... It's amazing how many remedies there are for COVID that we were never told about by the CDC is just, oh, you have COVID. Well, we better put you on a ventilator and keep you in the hospital for a week until you die. Is there anything we can do to treat this doctor? Nope. Not until the vaccine shows up. Well, trust me, as one who had COVID about three months ago and recovered from it because I took medication to treat it, there are treatments and all we have to do is take them in many cases. But when COVID happened, all of a sudden there was a big problem. It's an election year and people were losing their jobs. And so what are we going to do? So Congress, for into action, they all pull out their white Superman capes and say, here we come to save the day. I know I mix up my cartoons, but nonetheless, (laughs) let's come up with stimulus money. You're all going to be unemployed for a while. So we'll throw an extra $600 worth of fuel on the fire and see how you like it. All of a sudden it's like, I don't have to go to work. And I get my unemployment, yeah. And an extra $600 a week, sweet. Now the question, a lot and then what about the other stimulus checks that came through? $100 here, $2,400 there. I'll be honest with you, two of my kids, well, child, daughter and her husband, took their stimulus money, added it to their savings and bought a house in Texas. They left California and they moved to Texas. That added to their savings and they made a pretty good down payment. They didn't need it. They didn't want it. They didn't ask for it. So they threw it in the bank. Turns out they weren't alone. Remember, I mentioned that the uh, average savings rate in the United States is typically 7.2% of your earnings. And the reason analysts were looking at this number and saying 4.4. That's really low. That sounds like we might be headed for another Great Recession, right? Wrong, (laughs) wrong, wrong, wrong. In April of 2020, the savings rate in the United States, as the stimulus checks started to come in, the savings rate was 33.8%. Yeah, guess what? <laughs> the government gave people money and people took the money and put it in the bank. They, they didn't go crazy with their spending. They lived responsibly. Many people who lived in homes that had, uh, you know, lot of equity and they were in high tax states or whatever sold those homes and moved down they downsized a bit they went to florida they went to texas they went to states with no state income tax and a better quality of living for less money and all of a sudden they had money in the bank to save economists believe that they really don't have any idea how much money is in the bank in terms of unused savings but they say the, the, the stock of excess savings is around $2.2 trillion. The slowdown for the past quarter with people saving less has only knocked about $41 billion off of that number. And the economists say that when it comes to how much money is actually in the bank, households have an accumulated estimated worth of 2.3. trillion trillion dollars the average household net worth has risen about 30 percent over the past couple of years now in all honesty you know why that's happening because home values have just gone through the roof millennials all of a sudden are buying their first home they're kind of expensive but then the home prices go up and all of a sudden they have net worth they have equity and they're going hey this is really great so this is the good news for good news friday yes the economy's taking it in the shorts right now Inflation is 8%, 9%. It's kind of tapering off a little bit, but it's still far outpacing the increase in wages. But guess what else is good news? Americans chose to save. Americans chose to live responsibly, didn't pile too hard on the credit card debt. And I don't think the government counted on that, to be perfectly honest with you. A lot of people who, you know, went home because they were sent home for furlough, stayed home, (laughs) If they were in their early 60s they're retiring matter of fact businesses are scrambling now to try to get senior workers back into the workforce because nobody counted on the fact that so many people would be in such good financial shape in spite of the great recession downturn pandemic that things are going well so good news brothers and sisters it turns out we're a nation of savers at least for now we'll see what happens and how long that's able to hold up during the uh, this great recession that's been happening because of inflation right now. We'll put this article up from our friends at blaze media up at the bottom more good news in just a moment. As the bottom line continues good news, Friday edition of the bottom line show. I'm Roger Marsh. Good news that we're saving more money as citizens. That's good as taxpayers. Uh, people are uh, enjoying the, uh, the different uh, benefits of having a certain measure of liquid, as they say. And speaking of liquid, I just have to share this with you as we wrap up this first half hour here on Good News Friday. Um, It's not every day that a college basketball team uh, is going on the road during the summer to do some workouts, but the uh, men's basketball team for Auburn University actually did a summer trip that took them to play some games internationally. And while they were playing international basketball, uh, and this is a team that is going to be ranked pretty high nationally in the 2022-2023 season. They actually went to the Holy Land. They went to multiple historical sites in Israel. They went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Of course, that's the traditional place where uh, the empty tomb of Jesus is. And then something really remarkable happened. Auburn coach Bruce Pearl is Jewish And he said, you know, this is a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for me to get my players to go see literally the history of their uh, Judeo-Christian roots. They went to the World Holocaust Museum, they grieved, they went to the Dead Sea, they went to the Western Wall, they went to Bethlehem. And what was interesting is when they went to the Jordan River, after they prayed at the Western Wall, after they walked in the Garden of Gethsemane, basically the entire team jumped into the Jordan river and wanted to be baptized. (laughs) Isn't that incredible? I don't know how many of these guys are Christians or how many just became Christians or what. And the fact that their coach who is Jewish is supporting them in all this, I just think is fantastic. Good news. Good news. Good news. Ladies and gentlemen, we had this with Baylor last year. I believe the Baylor men's and women's teams uh, doing great things in the name of the Lord. Uh, watch the Auburn Uni- University of Auburn men's basketball team in the 22-23 basketball season and see how well these guys do. I'm not suggesting that everyone should go get baptized and then they're going to have a great basketball season. But nonetheless, it's refreshing to see these young guys embrace the culture and embrace the area. I'm sure some of them did it because the other guys were doing it. But, you know, it's amazing how when you put biblical principles and practices into the uh, into use, how that actually strengthens your life, whether you're a believer or not. And of course, for a Christian, it grows even deeper than that. On the other side of this break, I mentioned at the start of the program today, we were contacted by the, uh, uh, the publisher of a book that's become a favorite of Bottom Line Show listeners, uh, written by Joan Chittister. Uh, who's the uh, lecturer and the director of uh, Bennett Vision, a resource and research center for contemporary spirituality in Erie, Pennsylvania. She is a sister of the Benedictine Order of Erie and earned a doctorate in uh, speech communications theory from Penn State University. Uh, Sister Joan Chitterston, uh, is the author of a great book called The Monastic Heart, 50 Simple Practices for a Contemplative and Fulfilling Life. We have a link for the book at thebottomlineshow.com, and we're giving away a copy of the book on the other side of this break as The Bottom Line continues. You know, it's so interesting to think about How many people are looking for fulfillment in life? They're looking for purpose. They're looking for their life to have meaning and value, especially people in the millennial generation. And we have to ask the question, well, as Christians, shouldn't we be able to find this a lot more easily than we actually do. Joining me today on the program is Sister Joan Chittister. She is the author of a brand new book that I, well it's been out for a little while but it's new to me, that I think is really helpful especially for this time of year as people are making their New Year's resolutions and saying I really need to do something differently in my quiet time, and my Bible study, and my walk with the Lord. Her book is called The Monastic Heart, 50 Simple Practices for a, Cont- a Contemplative and Fulfilling Life. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Sister Joan Chittister, welcome to The Bottom Line Show.
2: Uh, thank you, Pastor uh, Roger. It's it's wonderful to be here with you and and the number of people that you are bringing to reflection. I think yes. I, I I really believe it's being willing to look at at the way our spiritual life goes together for its consistency and its um, uh, authenticity that is what makes the spiritual person in the end.
0: I love that. I love that sentiment. Sister Joan Chittister is internationally known as a writer and lecturer. She is the executive director of Bennett Vision, which is a uh, resource and research center for contemporary spirituality in Erie, Pennsylvania. Uh, She has served as president of the Leadership Conference of Women Religious and of the Conference of American Benedictine Priorities and uh, received uh, numerous awards, has written 60 books, and even received a doctorate from Penn State University in speech communications theory. So you've really put a lot of thought, obviously, not only into your spiritual life, but how to communicate that with other people as well. Talk about the, the monastic heart. I mean, it's easy for us to say, well, obviously, Sister Joan, you're, that, that's not—it's kind of part and parcel with who you are. But you're talking to a lot of people who are saying, I, I I, want to know what that means. Does it mean I have to become a monk? Does it mean I have to isolate yeah, myself? Yeah. What, what do you yeah. mean by that term?
2: Well, actually, at the beginning of this um, period of writing, uh, Pastor— I, I myself really, at first, wasn't driven by it. I've I've written a great deal about the spirituality, the spiritual life, the Benedictine tradition, as, as you've already indicated. Thank you. But at the same time, uh, I, I was equally concerned about human development at its best and its most moral and its it sounded so. I I wasn't selling anything. I wasn't mm-hmm. selling monasticism. I wasn't selling the Benedictine tradition. I was simply getting more and more involved in how does a person, as you said at the beginning, begin to imagine for themselves a, a, a spiritual life. That has a sense of fullness in it, rather than emptiness, rather than the continuing nagging notion I should be doing more, I should mm-hmm. be doing more. Uh, and i i'm I'm a fraud or I, I'm not uh, I'm, I'm a regular churchgoer, but frankly, I don't give much thought to the spiritual life. Then Covid came along, and mm-hmm. I began to see the institutions that have been the major purveyors of the spiritual life for all of us in every denomination, begin to close, begin to get smaller, begin to meet less, begin to close down the conferences, begin to separate people physically. And I said to myself, now what do you do, John? Mm. They're all out there alone. We have all been a a country of, of 350 million. We have managed overnight with one little virus to separate not just from one another, but from our very roots and foundations. And so I, I began, I began to, uh, to struggle with what I myself should be doing to fill this terrible, empty gap. And I realized that in the middle of this global calamity, Society was becoming more and more frail. Mm -hmm. We knew we had to endure it. There's no way out but through. Mm -hmm. But how would we do that? And what certainty did we have to help us along? So I was actually, Pastor, looking uh, for a way out of the emptiness and the sense of loss. I was looking for how we can—how can I say to anybody— here's a way to not just sustain your spiritual life but even deepen it during this period what internal resources can we rely on now to nourish our tenacity and how shall we cultivate the spiritual part of what wears us down and and come to realize that exactly what wears us down is what builds us up too
0: mm-hmm. yes
2: and so I I said to myself, where will you go, Joan, to give something to somebody? And I decided to go to the wisdom of the past, something that had lasted for over 1,500 years. Somebody should ask the question, how is that possible? But that's exactly how old and how long the Benedictine tradition has been. Over Mm -hmm. 1,500 years, still working on one tiny little rule, never changed a word of it and we and and so were the people who know that we need the things that last only the things that last will bring us the depth and the stolidity of soul and the values we need and so the answer to your question i had to begin to describe the monastic heart in a way that has nothing to do with monasteries Mm. that mm-hmm. every one of your listeners can say, that's me. That's I. Yes. I'm, I'm yes. that person. I, yeah. I, I've been looking for something. And so I asked myself the question you were just good enough to ask me, what does make a monastic card? And I, I put it down to uh, five or six things. It's driven by the spirit of tradition, whatever your tradition is. The Lutheran tradition is a strong and mighty and well-grounded um, history of, of spiritual development. It's driven monastic heart by the spirit of community as well, and Martin Luther knew all about that. He built it right in to, to the tradition itself, as, as, as many other spiritual leaders have also done under another name. I said, monasticism is also driven by a spirit of reflection. We don't just run by the rules. We're not about the regulations. We're about the people. We're about the principles of life. I said, monasticism is driven By the spirit of personal growth and development, nobody goes to a monastery, or if they do, can possibly abide it and stay there if it does not also develop them personally. So we're not leaving the person out here. On the contrary, the monastic heart should build you stronger, better, happier. The monastic heart is also driven then by a spirit of service. It does not exist for its own sake. It exists with uh, the doors of the heart open so that when a person comes to talk, somebody is there to listen. And finally, obviously, monastic monasticism is driven by a spirit of transcendence. We are not we are not a secularized Institution. We live in two worlds, this one and the one of the spirit. So it's all there tradition, community, reflection, personal growth, service, and transcendence. And to lay that out for people, I decided that I will look at the monastic life as we live it in my monastery and in monasteries around the globe on the basis of that little rule, and I would say, what are the kinds of things that we use in the monastery to keep us close to that spirit at all levels? Reflection, growth,
1: that. community,
2: yes. service, yeah. transcendence. And out of that came this notion of 50 Practices. It's very simple, uh, Pastor Roger. It's, it's so simple it's almost
0: impossible to explain. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, but at the same time, <laughs> just because something is simple doesn't necessarily make it easy. And we're going to take a quick break. No, and on the just, other side of this break, yeah. we're not going to be able to get through all 50 of them in 10 minutes, but we're going to do our best. Uh, Sister Joan Chittister is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. This fascinating new book, which is perfect for this time of year, as you're getting ready to kind of do a reset of your goals, of your life focus, of your spiritual development. The book is called The Monastic Heart. 50 Simple Practices for a Contemplative or Contemplative, if you will, and a Fulfilling Life. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. More of my conversation with Sister Joan in just a moment as The Bottom Line continues. Delightful conversation today here on The Bottom Line Show with Sister Joan Chittister. I'm Roger Marsh and we are so grateful to have this dialogue about her new book called The Monastic Heart. 50 Simple Practices for a Contemplative and Fulfilling Life. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Yes, they are based on the life of St. Benedict. These are principles that go back to the 6th century. And I love the way you describe it in the uh, in the liner notes, Joan, about the, the idea that this is something for each of us, the idea that Benedict was live, trying to live a life of moral integrity. In the face of an empire, he didn't want to conquer, didn't want to overpower anybody or anything like that. He really just wanted to live, as you put it, an ordinary life extraordinarily well. And I, I, I think that is such a, a helpful guide for us. There are fifty of these, pra- these practices that you outline in the book, and we've got a link for the book up at the com. Help us walk through a couple of them just to kind of get an idea of what you're, where you're going with this. Okay,
2: they're they're simple and and they're and they're quick and they're and they're common. So let's look at that. Chapter one's about bells. Uh, Every monastery you have ever seen in your life has -hmm. a bell sitting on the top of it, and when you walk in, they're ringing that bell regularly five times a day. Why? The function of the bell is not to enable uh, monastics to tell time. We can do that. (laughs) It is to stop us, the way we're spending our time, Three or four or five times a day to say to us, uh, uh, you, have to, um, you have to remember, Joan, God created the world, but God did not complete it. God left that to us. That's what the bell is telling you. Center yourself, Joan, on what is important in life. Don't get so caught up in this project that you forget that the project is about completing the world that God created. Or... We have a practice in a monastery called stazio. That's a Latin word. You can recognize it. It says station. Mm -hmm. And it says, in essence, be where you are. Now, most of us in American culture come racing into the house at about five to five, throw our briefcase down, uh, grab the, the, the handle to hang our coat on slide into chapel just as somebody's saying in the name of the Father and the Son, mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit No, no you don't if you're a monastic. When I was a kid, I was sixteen, I said to the novice mistress, What what time are we supposed to be in church? She said, Prayers at five o'clock, you're to be there at five to five. Par- pardon me. What what'd you say? She said, Prayers at five o'clock, you're to be there at five to five. I said to her sister, what what time is prayer? Is it at five or is it five to five? She said, "Joan, it's at five, and you're to be there at five to five for stazio. What's that mean? It means get it together. Uh-huh. Leave where you just were, John. The interesting uh-huh. meeting, the exciting video, the nice conversation with Pastor Roger and all of his people." <laughs> get out of that. Sit here now. Collect your mind and your heart. Concentrate on what we're doing next, and what we're doing next is centering ourselves in the heart of God. That's Statio. Or how about uh, the Hararian? We divide our lives. Everybody does, but we, we run them the same way every single day of our life. Right. We have time for prayer. Time for private reflection, time to do our work, time to quit our work and do some spiritual reading, time to sit down with the community and be free. That means that our life is divided into little packages or packets of time that enable us to live all of it in the consciousness of the presence of God. Or finally, silence. Uh, is very important to a monastic. It, uh, our silence throws us inside ourselves instead of out into this noisy, rampant, rambling, thumping world. and in the in the quietness, not necessarily of the chap of the uh, of the swing on the back porch, mm-hmm. I just quiet myself. and then I begin to hear the world around me. And I begin to hear, the consciousness of God in me, and I begin to, go- to hear God talking to me as I seek God. And finally, a major, major practice for a monastic is hospitality. Your door is always open. You are open to the world. You are into the, a position of civilization-making. You include everybody You allow everybody to be peaceful where you are, including, quote, those who are not like us. So that means that it eliminates racism, sexism, uh, religious prejudices, and allows us to be open to this world that God created and expects us to complete.
0: It's a fascinating look at the monastic life and how it can impact each of us as in the body of Christ. Written by Sister Joan Chittister, today on the Bottom Line, my guest, that we're talking about the monastic heart. The book called *The Monastic Heart: Fifty Simple Practices for a Contemplative and Fulfilling Life*. We have a link for the book up at the Bottom dot com. Sister Joan, as you were talking about the bells and the stasio and the and the horarium and the and the silence. I think about, you know, and, and the hospitality too. And as an introvert, I'll tell you, hospitality is the one I really struggle with. You're like, wow, you're a pastor and you have a hard time with hospitality. Come on, man. Read the scriptures. Oh, I love you, Divine.
2: <laughs>
0: well, you know, I just I, I have to be that way. Uh, but but at the same time though, I appreciate the fact it seems like everything that you were just describing there kind of gives us the legs to to live out Romans twelve eighteen, you know, where Paul says, as much as it pertains to you. Live peaceably with all people. I think so many people focus on the peace part and forgetting. Hey, wait a minute! Not everybody's going to want to live peaceably with us. I mean, we're we're, we're kind of uh, aliens here in this in this world. But you've given us a recipe for saying, okay, well, but this. Don't worry about them. This is how we are called to live. Talk about how the monastic heart really isn't so much about going off into a physical place, though that is a part of it. You mentioned the swing or the the, the quiet place, but it's really a matter of saying, I want my heart to be so devoted to God and to his service that I'm going to keep it basically that way. I mean, it's going to be monastic. It's going to be so singularly focused that people will be uh, drawn to the evidence of the Holy Spirit in my heart. Uh,
2: uh, Pastor Roger, it can't be said better than what you have just said. That's the entire, that's the rhythm of the life. To remember that every part of it, as different as it is, is a call from God to live a godly life. And that God is present within us and around us and in the other and around them and in nature and in whatever is to come. And it will be, we have a a promise in this life that whatever happens hereafter, will be equally sound and equally good. So this, this identification of every type of work, every type of moment with the presence of God in our life is a spiritual foundation that's made of pure cement.
1: Hmm.
0: Rock solid never going to move. And especially for us here in Southern California, when we talk about the shifting sands and building on that solid foundation or not, uh, in earthquake country, you really appreciate a solid foundation. But uh, I'm That's so grateful right. for this this conversation and the fact that God spoke to your heart, Sister Joan, to, to put this monastic heart principles, uh, put these together in one book form that our listeners can benefit from. The book is called The Monastic Heart, 50 Simple Practices for a Contemplative and Fulfilling Life by Sister Joan. Joan Chittister. I should say Dr. Sister Joan Chittister. I want to make sure that uh, our listeners are well aware of how much time and education has gone into her ministry uh, to make this uh, book a reality. We're so grateful for the time to have this conversation. Um, The book is up at thebottomlineshow.com. Sister Joan, thank you so much for uh, visiting with us today, for sharing with us today, and giving us so much food for thought as to how to develop the monastic heart in our own walk with the Lord uh, throughout 2022. Thanks for being with us today here on the program.
2: God bless you, Pastor. You're doing great work.
0: And that concludes my conversation with Dr. Sister Joan Chittister here on The Bottom Line Show, talking about her... just outstanding and helpful resource uh, called The Monastic Heart, 50 Simple Practices for a Contemplative and Fulfilling Life. There's a link for the book at thebottomlineshow.com, and we have a copy to give away right now. Uh, Give Teresa a call at 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278. That's the number to get you through to the bottom line. Sister Joan is not recommending that you become a monk per se, but rather saying, hey, look, Part of the monastic life involves solitude and silence and confession and obedience to god and what better way to demonstrate that you are abiding in christ than by looking at these practices use this as a devotional you know take a look at one of them every day or one of them each week and see how it affects your life Uh, i'm sure it will be a benefit to you the monastic heart 50 Simple Practices for a Contemplative and Fulfilling Life by Sister Joan Chittister, who's been my guest today here on The Bottom Line. We have one copy to give away, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278. That's the number to get you through to The Bottom Line. Here at Kbright, we are proud to recommend Stephanie and Jim Cover of Cover Law because they take such good care of their clients.
3: I was coming home, it was like two days before Christmas, and I was sitting at a bottom of a hill, and somebody just came smashing into me. Like, they didn't even break or anything. They were coming down a steep hill. The people that hit me had no insurance, no license, no proof of anything. I had a lot going on in my life at the the time. I was busy at work. I was doing a lot of overtime. My husband came down with cancer. That was really a hard point in my life for my husband and I. She was by my side trying to help me through the accident and giving me personal support and telling me to keep the faith. And I was all ready like to, you know, throw in the towel. And she, she just kept me going. They're just hardworking people. They know their stuff. They're very educated. They make you feel comfortable. They stick with you all the way. I used them as attorneys. Now they're friends. And once in a while, I tease them. Do I need to get in trouble so I could retain you guys? <laughs> I'd do anything to help those guys. I highly recommend them. I mean, I haven't had need for an attorney before, and I fell into the right hands.
0: In the event of an accident, call Cover Law right away, 877-214-4935. That's 877-214-4935. My thanks again to Sister Joan Chittister for joining me today here on The Bottom Line, revisiting a conversation we've had before about her outstanding book called The Monastic Heart, 50 Simple Practices for a Contemplative and Fulfilling Life. We've got a link for the book up at the thebottomlineshow.com, and we're giving away a copy right now. Teresa has it in hand. And wants to give it to you. 800 227 5278. 800 227 5278. 800 227 5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. You know, it's interesting how many people will say, Gosh, I just don't feel like God's in my life anymore. I just don't feel like, um, you know, that I I really have a relationship with the Lord. And you know what's interesting is, here in the 21st century, when you look at the life of St. Benedict, who lived what, 1500 years prior to that. And he was looking for moral integrity in the face of what was happening where everybody was trying to conquer everybody else. We as Christians can often fall victim to cultural norms, if you will, that says, hey, the way we show that, uh, you know, we're winning souls for the kingdom is by winning elections and power and this type of stuff. Now, elections are important, obviously, and elections have consequences. But I use that as an example during this election year of why it's important for us to make sure that first and foremost, we're spending time in prayer. We're spending time alone with the Lord. We're abiding with him by obeying his commands and not seeking power by the world's standards by seeking it God's way. And that is the bottom line on that. For our KCBC audience, enjoy the rest of your day. Uh, we've got uh, Rabbi Schneider and Discovering the Jewish Jesus coming up next. For those who remain with us on the network, a fascinating story about a baseball legend whose grandson is overcoming amazing odds to follow in his grandfather's footsteps. That's coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. Well, good news, good news, good news. Welcome to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, uh, joining us wherever you're picking us up. All along the Bottom Line Show network, we podcast at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn. Uh, you could catch video clips from the Bottom Line Show each week at myhopenow.com. As a matter of fact, you also want to take a look there for uh, the National Crawford Roundtable. As a matter of fact, it's kind of fun when we first started the My Hope Now uh, app and then the website, we started out by really promoting heavily the, uh, the ministries that are part of uh, the Crawford family. And, you know, these ministries are still such a huge part of what we do. And I encourage you to, if you enjoy the ministries at all, write to them, let them know, drop them a line, of course, support them financially because their support makes the program possible here on our stations. But I first started out, we didn't have a lot about the program hosts, like Bob and Bob Duco, Neil Boron, John Rush and yours truly, and we didn't have a lot about the National Crawford Roundtable. And a lot of people were kind of confused because we'd say, hey, go to the My Hope Now app and you can listen to NCR, and they'd go, where? I don't, I don't. It's, it was kind of buried toward the bottom. We revamped the website not too long ago, and now when you go to myhopenow.com or if you hit the app, the first thing you see is National Crawford Roundtable, Bob Duco, Neil Boron, yours truly, John Rush, in that order across the screen. And uh, boy, we had a very spirited conversation yesterday about a couple of different topics. Uh, one, the student loan forgiveness issue, which I'm sure will be wearing out over the next couple of weeks, especially with the election coming up. And uh, the I went back and recalculated. There are currently 46 million people, I believe, who are holding some kind of student loan debt right now. And 43 million of them apparently are going to get some kind of relief. So this really is widespread. But it's if you've got a Pell Grant while you're going to school and you took out a student loan, they're going to wipe out a lot of the student loan up to $20,000. And if you uh, didn't have a Pell Grant, then it's up to $10,000. It will be a savings for some people, but it is kind of teaching other folks, hey, you know what? If you make a mess, eventually someone else is going to pick it up and you don't have to worry about it. Now, I, I realize for some, it, it is a hardship. And the colleges have a, a stake in this as well in terms of how much money they have and why the tuitions are so high when they're sitting on these massive endowments. And, you know, the, the amount of money that goes into the college collegiate system anyway, not just athletics, but for academics too, uh, it, it probably needs a massive reform. And what we've done is given everybody a lollipop. But, you know, I, I, I can, what concerns me about that I think the antidote for that is this next good news story that we have. What concerns me about the entitled me too, or what about me, my hands out type of mentality that is so common in the culture right now is I think we do it so often now people don't even realize it. Um, Yesterday, uh, not yesterday, two days ago when we were recording the uh, NCR podcast, uh, Bob Duco and I were talking before the show and he was talking about the... uh, the different uh, laws that have been passed recently with regard to, you know, trying to lower costs for people, you know, and again, anytime the government says we'll pay for something, that means you and I are going to pay more in taxes. I mean, you do realize that, right? The government doesn't just say, you know what, ah, we're not going to charge you. It really did strike a nerve. And if they were trying to sow seeds of division between conservatives and, and liberals and progressives, then point for the White House, because that's exactly what they've done. But it was interesting as we were talking about it and he said yeah they're going to have this giveaway and these handout or whatever i said no 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 bob it's, a, it's not a, it's forgiveness that's what it is it's all about the terminology and francis schaefer once famously said he who controls the word controls the world and we are living in that world right now that is controlled by words ironically uh, the, the the experts still tell us that 93 percent of communication is nonverbal. Yeah, it's like, great. So (laughs) I picked a great career, you know, (laughs) preaching, teaching, (laughs) talking on the radio. 93% of what I say doesn't matter to you. And 93% of what I hear and see and whatever doesn't matter to me either, apparently. What does matter are the intangibles. Tone of voice. The way I'm positioned with my body or my hands or whatever when we're talking face-to-face. It really is, I mean, a challenge. It's a challenge that I love and I really appreciate. I, I, I want, when I was that little boy listening to my Panasonic transistor radio late at night, because my parents' bedtime was, you know, 7.30 or whatever, but I could listen to the radio till I fell asleep. And I would listen to, you know, in the summer, the spring, Angels baseball, right? I mean, if the Angels are home. It's Dick Enberg and Don Wells on KMPC. If the Do- and the Dodgers were on the road. If the Dodgers were home, I'd flip over to KFI. Uh, and it's Vince Scully and Jerry Doggett. During basketball season, you had Chick Hearn. During the week, uh, If you all the SC football games were on the weekends, but Dick Enberg again on KMPC with Rams football and Tom Kelly. Oh, mercy, nurse. Yeah, you remember, Tom, if you're Southern Californian. And the Kings, Bob Miller, and I mean, great announcers. I fell asleep listening to these guys, and they motivated me, and they stimulated me with their words the pastors, the preachers, with their words. And now we're in a culture where the words don't matter, but the actions sure do. How many people are going to vote for this administration again and keep Democrats in control in the House of Representatives because they got $10,000 knocked off their student loan? How many others are going to say, oh yeah, I'll show you and vote against them. But the actions speak louder than the words, even though the words do play a huge role. Case in point, an inspiring young man who may or may not have a professional career ahead of him. He's pitching in high school right now. His name is Jackson Ryan. Now, anytime you talk about a baseball player, especially one who is a pitcher, and you hear the name Ryan, the first question us longtime baseball fans will ask is, is he any relation to the Ryan Express? Lynn Nolan Ryan, who at the tender age of 19 was traded from the New York Mets to the California Angels in a four-player deal. Jim Fergosi went from the Angels to the Mets. And it was, I'm going to botch this here. Uh, if I remember correctly, it was Nolan Ryan, Lee Stanton, and I can't remember the other two guys. I'm going to have to look it up during the break. Anyway, Ryan came over. He was hard throwing. But they were concerned he'd be too wild because that 100 mile an hour fastball, no one knew what to do with it. And he came to the Angels, and for a decade, he set the standard for starting pitchers. Innings pitched. I mean, the Angels were terrible, and Nolan Ryan and Frank Tanana used to go out there and throw complete games. Now, when you're on the road and your team's losing a lot of complete games, only eight innings, but still. Um, back in the old days, who was it with the Milwaukee Bra- or the White Sox or the Braves? Ah, uh, they had uh, Warrens. Sp- no, the Braves. It was Warren Spawn and Johnny Sane. and that was all they had. They didn't really have any other good pitchers for the Braves. And so the old refrain was, "Who's your starting four for the pitchers?" They'd say, "Well, it's Spawn and Sain, and then pray for rain." Well, with the Angels, it was Tanana and Ryan, and then start crying. I mean, they were they were that way. But Nolan Ryan went on after Gene Autry. He hit the age of thirty. Right after the 1979 season, they'd won their first American League Western Championship. They lost to the Baltimore Orioles in the uh, playoffs. The Orioles went on and uh, won the uh, World Series against the Pirates that year. But I believe so. Or I you do know, the Pirates, we are family. Then Never mind, the Orioles got their chance years later. Um, Nolan Ryan wanted a million dollars a year in 1980. That was a lot of money. Gene Autry didn't want to pay him, so he said, see you later. Free agency was just happening, so Ryan signed with the Houston Astros. And look out, world. Here come more no-hitters, and here come more strikeouts. And and then he was done with the Astros, and the Rangers picked him up because he's from Arlington area, and he played for the Rangers. I think he retired in, what, 1993 at 27 seasons? 5,700-something strikeouts. I mean, just remarkable. And he was still throwing heat into his 40s. Now, he has two sons, Nolan Ryan does, Reed Ryan and Reese Ryan, named after a couple of uh, very influential... I don't know who the Reed is, to be honest with you, but I know that Reese Ryan was named for Jimmy Reese, who was a a veteran aging member of the coaching staff with the Angels. And he... um, uh, Nolan Ryan had a fond uh, affection and appreciation for um, Jimmy Reese. Well, meanwhile, Reed Ryan is the uh, president of the Houston Astros now. I think Nolan Ryan has some ownership in the Strohs. And so Jackson wants to be a pitcher, like his dad, like his grandpa. Just one problem. Ryan J- Jackson Ryan was actually born with cerebral palsy. It's a muscle disease, as you know. It impacts the entire right side of his body, not the left. I mean, someone with CP, uh, sometimes they're kind of curled up in knots and stuck in a wheelchair. Other times it affects the foot or a hand or something like that. In Jackson Ryan's case, it messes up the whole right side of his body. That would make playing baseball pretty impossible for anyone, right? Well, especially pitching off a mound when you have no motor skills on your right hand. How do you do it? Well, somehow Jackson Ryan is a pitcher. He is currently pitching at Second Baptist as part of the Second Baptist Eagles in Houston. He's got some solid coaching with him, but he's really making a difference. He's a junior right now at this organization, and he wants to keep playing in college. But how is he pulling it off? And why is this such good news for those of us who don't necessarily have everything we think we need to Uh, accomplish the goals that God has called us to accomplish. We'll talk about that on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Do something productive with your money over the next three years. Invest in Dennis Wilson's real estate-backed 6% CD alternative.
1: You know, with the current administration, you've got three things that you can do. You can stay in the market for the next three years and watch your account go up and down and see what happens. Option two is take your money, put it in the money market, hold on to it, and hope that the Fed raises interest rates. Or number three, you can put your money into our exclusive 6% account. You've got your money safe and sound in a hard asset over the next three years. At the end of three years, you evaluate where you want to be. You want to try the market? You go back. You want to put it into a CD? You go back. Or you just want to reinvest for another three years at 6%. But in the interim, you have made 6% for three years instead of zero. Instead of riding the
0: up-and-down elevator of the market or leaving your money in the bank earning nothing, you can earn 6% over the next three years guaranteed with Wilson Financial Services. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970 for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Jackson Ryan in the spotlight, one of the grandsons of the great Nolan Ryan, who, uh, of course, Major League Superstar, Hall of Famer, Uh, But Matter of fact, if you're a Dennis Wilson fan, Dennis Wilson, of course, Wilson Financial Services, uh, one of the sponsors of the Bottom Line Show, 800-696-9970. Dennis has an autographed Nolan Ryan jersey in his office. Yeah, pretty impressive. I like to record with Dennis in his office sometimes, just to sit there and look at the Nolan Ryan jersey. Uh, Give Dennis a call, by the way, 800-696-9970, as we are moving through the getting ready for the election and tax season coming up and end of year things that you can be doing with your portfolio. Dennis is the guy that I recommend to do so. Um, second Baptist in Houston is where Jackson Ryan is a pitcher, which is pretty remarkable when you consider he was born with cerebral palsy and basically the whole right side of his body doesn't work. So how does he do it? Well, you remember Jim Abbott guy used to pitch for the, uh, the California Angels, he also pitched for the Yankees. I think he threw a no-hitter for the Yankees. Um, and he pitched at the University of Michigan, played for the White Sox before he retired. Uh, Jim Abbott was born without a right hand. He had full arm, Everything else was there. Just didn't have a right hand, wanted to play baseball. Well, you know, as a kid, he didn't know that you're not supposed to be able to throw with your left hand and put a glove on your hand and catch with that and throw. He used the stump, worked it to his advantage, and he actually won a gold glove in fielding one year, I believe. Well, because Jackson Ryan has cerebral palsy and he doesn't have the motor skills to use his right hand, he wears a special Velcro strap on that side of his body that attaches to another piece on the inside of his glove. It's a glove made for the left hand, just like Jim Abbott. And what happens is he's got that attached to his body, on where his right hand you know should be as part of the motion goes and then he winds up he throws the pitch and as soon as he does his hand goes in the glove which is stuck to his body with velcro and then he catches it when they throw it back to him or it's hit to him he can drop it pick it up and throw the ball and get the batter out now jim abbott pitched in the major leagues for 10 years This is a guy who pitched in Division I at the University of Michigan. The Angels drafted him, and he never spent a day in the minors. Jackson Ryan is currently pitching in relief for Second Baptist in Houston. The team is managed by some pretty good company. A couple of former Astros, a couple of Texans. Astros star, who also played for the Cardinals, I believe. Lance Berkman is the manager of the team. And uh, Andy Pettit. My One of my son's favorite pitchers when he was with the Yankees, uh, Andy Pettit, is also working with the pitching staff as well. Now, is Jackson Ryan any good? I mean, we, sentimentally, we want him to be great. But is he any good? Let's be real. Okay. Well, the numbers don't lie. He has pitched in five and two-thirds innings of relief. His earned run average is just under five, which... If he were a professional, wouldn't keep his job. But in high school, not bad. Through five and two-thirds innings, he's going to give up about a run an inning. And of the 17 outs that he has recorded so far, nine of them are via, via strikeout. But Lance Berkman, very strong Christian. Andy Pettit, very strong Christian as well. Both say the same thing about this guy. The thing that makes them so proud and impressed with Jackson Ryan is the fact that he is determined. He has that perseverance. He knows that God has given him a gift and also given him what he needs. So instead of saying, God, why didn't you give me full body motion and my why is my the muscles on why are the muscles on my right hand, uh, my right arm, you know, why are they so atrophied and not working because of the CP? Instead, it's okay, Lord, how are we gonna pitch? I'm gonna boggle people's minds with this rotation that I have. And so far, I mean Of the 17-ounce he's recorded, nine of them by strikeout, either blowing that fastball by him because he's got a little bit of grandpa's miles per hour there, or just they can't pick up what he's throwing. So we'll put this article up at TheBottomLineShow.com. I thought as we're getting into the playoff season for Major League Baseball, need an encouraging story. And this certainly is one that will put a smile on your face going into the weekend. As we continue, our final good news story for the week... Uh, involves a church that was deemed to be in violation of COVID mandates back in the day. You remember in the People's Republic of California here, we had lots of churches that were trying their very best to be God-honoring, to continue to meet together. What is this Hebrews 10.25? Let us not not give up in meeting together, as some have been wont to do. Let let let's get together. Now, early on in the stages of COVID, I understand this new mysterious virus came from the east. Nobody knew that much about it. It was kind of like HIV in that sense, if you remember, forty years ago. And then there's the monkeypox thing that kind of went up the flagpole of the media and then went down because no one really saluted it. I mean, there are certain diseases that are passed from. Uh, person to person by way of some kind of physical contact that is preventable others though with a virus like covid i mean a sneeze a cough you could give it to someone just kind of being in the presence i was talking with a pastor not too long ago who uh, he and his wife and five children all had covid one of their kids got it at an event they were at brought it home wound up giving it to everybody in the family. Dad was working hard to kind of keep everybody else healthy and safe. And then by the end of the day, or at the end of the uh, month or whatever, he wound up getting it. And his case was so severe, he was hospitalized for a week. So most of us know that COVID is, was that kind of danger zone. But at the same time, though, there were some pretty draconian restrictions put on, especially churches, to so-called st- stop the spread, but in essence, violated our religious liberties. One of those churches in question was Calvary Chapel, San Jose. Pastor Mike McClure was one of the pastors who said, look, here's the deal. Everybody seemed to close down for two weeks, three weeks, etc., etc. But then by the time we got into the summer of 2020, a lot of churches said, you know what, we're just going to meet again. I was talking with a pastor here in Southern California uh, not too long ago who is part of a church that has about... Uh, uh, 2,500 members. And I asked him how they handled COVID. He goes, we didn't change a thing. They have a radio ministry. They usually advertise their events. They were still talking on social media. They continued to meet every Sunday in person. No one got COVID. No one had any life-threatening illnesses. They just kept going. And it made me wonder if more churches would have taken that stance how much better would it have been for people who wound up in these isolation modes and either leaving the church or churches falling apart or people having thoughts of suicide and drug and alcohol abuse skyrocketing simply because we could not be together remember those first few weeks when we were coming back together and then it was like hey we can get together in june but then in july we got to shut down and then in august and back and forth and back and forth well finally calvary chapel san jose just said to heck with it we're going to meet every sunday and we'll practice the distancing uh, masks are optional um, use your own good judgment well then san jose got involved and said no 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 you can't do that santa clara county had a restraining order uh violating uh, holding calvary chapel to this uh This ruling, of course, that churches were being held to, you can't get together and meet, you can't have more than 10 people in the room, everybody has to be 100 miles apart, blah, blah, blah. Basically, in Santa Clara County, there was a restraining order against anybody who was trying to hold an indoor gathering that had more than 100 people. On November the 2nd, 2020, uh, the church was fined by a a local uh, appellate of $33,000 for violating the santa clara order the order was issued after the church failed to abide to the guidelines on october 13th of that year now the guideline exempted secular establishments schools didn't have to abide by this schools that were meeting five days a week train stations didn't airports hospitals stores restaurants The, the new requirements didn't have that kind of discrimination but the church said that's unconstitutional you can't do it well guess what Not only did they find them on October 13th of 2020, they uh, also added $22,000 in fines on November 2nd, that restraining order. And then by February 16th of 2021, they issued an order of contempt of court imposing monetary sanctions on the church and the pastors personally. All told, the church was on the hook for about $200,000 in fines and penalties, because they would not comply with Santa Clara County's uh, uh, ordinances. But the church stood firm. Pastor McClure and his group continued to meet. They hired the necessary attorneys. And then a funny thing happened on the way to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. You know what it was? It was the 2020 decision involving the Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn versus then-Governor Andrew Cuomo. And in that case, the high court found That an executive order from Governor Cuomo that limited attendance at houses of worship in areas with high levels of coronavirus transmission was unconstitutional because it allowed a quote-unquote essential business like an acupuncture facility to continue to admitting, admitting as many people as they wanted to. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court and you know what happened next. The Supreme Court said even in a pandemic, I'm quoting them here, the Constitution could not be put away and forgotten characterizing the worship restrictions as, quote, uh, a strike at the very heart of the First Amendment's guarantee of religious liberty. So what about the $200,000 fines that were being sought against Calvary Chapel San Jose? I'll tell you the good news about that story coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. Good news Friday, continuing here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. Good news coming out of Calvary Chapel San Jose that's technically in Santa Clara County. The county had an ordinance that said you could not have more than a hundred people in an indoor gathering, but then they would have exemptions for hospitals and restaurants and stores, trains to schools. So on October 13th of 2020, Calvary Chapel San Jose was cited by Santa Clara County officials for violating the order, fine 20 grand, another $22,000 in other fines. And then they, when they didn't pay them and they kept meeting the, the, church was fined another two hundred thousand dollars the church as an organization as well as pastors personally well looking at supreme court rulings like the roman catholic diocese of brooklyn versus andrew cuomo at all there's six in total and especially in the supreme court opinion in april 2021 tanden versus Newsom, that's when the high court ruled against santa clara county's public health orders that limited attendance at private gatherings in the opinion, they said, this is the fifth time the court has summarily rejected the Ninth Circuit's analysis of California's COVID restrictions. California treats some comparable secular activities more favorable than at-home religious exercise, permitting hair salons, retail stores, personal care services, movie theaters, private suites at sporting events, and concerts and indoor restaurants to bring together more than three households at a time. Now remember Artur Paluski, the pastor of Cave of adulam and Street Church in Calgary, Alberta, also had the same type of problem in Canada. Well, fortunately for Calvary Chapel San Jose, all is now right with the world. A three-judge panel on California's Sixth District Court of Appeal has ruled in favor of the church, reversed the lower court decisions against the church for holding large in-person worship gatherings and visitation restrictions, et cetera, et cetera. They've reversed the order that ordered the church to pay $33,000 for violating the restraining order. They've dumped out the $22,000 in fines against the church, and all of the contempt charges that totaled nearly $200,000 are out the door. Now, what is the moral of the story for churches who met and were fined and went to court? I don't think God wants us to have to go to court with anybody. And the last thing we want to do is take a godly issue before an ungodly judge against another ungodly person. But when someone forces your hand like this, This is a golden opportunity for you not to try to seek damages and punish somebody else, but to preach the good news of the gospel. It's not about money. It's not about constitutional rights. It's about our mission as Christians, which is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation and baptize those who believe and receive that message in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. That's the bottom line.